My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Welcome to the Venture is Human show. I'm your host, Mohamed al founder and managing partner of Outliers Capital. In this show, I converse with thought leaders in the venture and investing world to unpack the human side of investing and company building. If you're a founder or an investor, you already know that investing is fundamentally a people's business. Explore that further with our guest today. Welcome, MG, to the to the show. Thanks for having me, Mo. So I uh, would love to start by just talking a little bit, reflecting back. You had a, an incredible career in the venture space and would love to hear whether uh, when you look back, there have been some people who've influenced you the most and intrigued you to be, to be a VC, to enter or even stay in VC. Yeah, sure. You know, it's uh, it's good timing to talk about this a little bit, uh, I think, because I'm approaching 10 years actually being a VC now, which is sort of incredible to me uh, as it's sort of uh, not a career I expected to sort of be in. And um, it's also interesting in context versus, you know, I came from a reporting blogging world uh, back in the day, and we can talk a little bit more about that. But I've actually been doing this now on the VC side far longer than I ever did that. So when you ask what sort of drew me into it uh, and and who I looked up to it and whatnot. So obviously I'd been a reporter at TechCrunch and then before that VentureBeat. And so I'd been, you know, covering the industry uh, here and there. Um, you know, I was, I was largely writing about Apple and, and some of the bigger companies, but I was writing about a number of startups and obviously those startups were getting funded by VCs. And so it was actually not, as I said, something that I intended to go down this path not because I didn't think it was possible. I just didn't really consider it. I thought sort of, I had always stumbled into the reporting job. I had been working as a web developer and just writing about technology on the side. And that's how I stumbled into the reporting thing. People at VentureBeat, my friend Eric Eldon now saw me, you know, doing this on the side and, and asked if I would come up to the Bay Area to sort of try to do this for a living. I didn't think you could at the time. I didn't realize that blogging was like a thing you could do for a living back then. Uh, this is like the 2007 timeframe, roughly. Turns out you could. And uh, so anyway, so as I got into that world, again, I started to cover VCs as a result of sort of writing about interesting startups and got to know a few VCs here and there just in conversations that naturally come up both for sourcing articles, but also just getting their perspective on why they were funding what they were funding on the startup side. And then it was really when TechCrunch sold. So after VentureBeat, I went to TechCrunch, as mentioned. TechCrunch sold to AOL back in 2010. And it was at that point that actually a bunch of VCs reached out to me, not to come work for them at first. It was more, 
to see if I was going to start a new tech publication. You know, the idea, obviously, that TechCrunch had just sold, and maybe I wouldn't stay at AOL and continue to work for TechCrunch, and maybe I should start my own thing. And I had thought about it a little bit, and, and I went down the path of those conversations. I was happy at TechCrunch still, even after the acquisition, and was content to stay around. But uh, yeah, as, as those conversations sort of hit off, they evolved rather quickly into, well, what you were doing at TechCrunch and VentureBeat, looking at early stage startups to write about, isn't all that different philosophically from what we're trying to do, finding early stage interesting companies to write checks into instead of writing articles about, of course. And so there's there's a bunch of nuance and, and differences there. But again, a high level, it sort of seemed like it could translate. And then, of course, there had been uh, you know, a, a handful of, of people who had, had made that jump in the past. Uh, the most successful, of course, being Michael Moritz at, at Sequoia, who was a reporter at Time back in the day and wrote a book about Apple back in the day, um, famously. And uh, so that's that's sort of a lofty uh, goal and lofty expectations to come in with. But there had also been others, Stuart Alsop and, and some other uh, folks that were in the venture industry for a long time who had, who had also had sort of a reporting or writing background. And so, again, it hadn't been done for a while. So it wasn't something that I was actively considering. But as those conversations with VCs evolved, it seemed like, well, maybe this would start to make some sense. And so... Uh, I, I took my time, though, again, was in no hurry to leave TechCrunch, AOL, um, was happy sort of doing what I was doing. But as those conversations sort of went on, uh, I eventually went to the boss, my bosses at, at TechCrunch, Heather Hardy was CEO there, and Michael Arrington, who was the founder, and said, hey, I think I'm going to actually pursue one of these VC uh, gigs. It would have been sort of a more junior type gig, you know, at a VC firm. And uh, some of them looked even more like an EIR type thing. And, and maybe I would eventually sort of roll out and do a, do a publication or start something on my own. But when I went to uh, Heather and Mike at, at TechCrunch, they sort of let me know, well, actually, we're thinking about starting a fund uh, as an offshoot of TechCrunch. And that's what eventually became Crunch Fund, which was started as like a $30 million seed stage fund with myself, Mike Arrington, and another a person, Pat Gallagher, who had actually been an investor. So he was the one who brought the investing experience around the table. And so, yeah, we kicked that off, you know, in 2011. And that's where I started sort of started my career doing that. That, that's an amazing, amazing journey. And, and obviously having uh, Michael Moritz as uh, someone to follow in his footsteps is, is definitely uh, shooting high, which I think you, you definitely have, have done some phenomenal uh, investments over the past decade. Kind of like reflecting back, a decade is, is a long time. If, if we consider like the internet is, is, you know, 20 years ago, people thought it's a fad. So like a decade uh, is, is half of that time. What kept you excited and going and kind of like motivated you to stay in the industry for a decade? So, you know, thinking back to the yeah, 2011 timeframe when I started at, at CrunchFund, it was really, I mean, certainly I felt I got thrown into it, um, you know, obviously consciously, but uh, very much thrown in and hit the ground running. It was sort of the idea was at one point that we would be doing crunch fund. We would also still be writing um, at TechCrunch. You know, you know, obviously there was there was disclosures required and and all sorts of different um, angles that we needed to take to make sure that that there was proper disclosures, things like that. But the idea was that we could sort of ease into, as it were, uh, the investing side of things. And instead, uh, AOL sort of had other ideas. They had they had acquired Huffington Post, uh, you know, around the same time, a little bit after TechCrunch. And so I think there was some unease in that group that that we were going to be investing and writing at the same time. And so it basically became 
we were going to just be doing the venture side, you know, full time instead of, uh, you know, sort of easing into it. And so, yeah, it just hit the ground running. We knew that the sweet spot would be sort of investing in early stage companies because, again, that's what we had been covering. That's what TechCrunch sort of was, you know, focused on. And uh, at the same time, we had a lot of relationships. Uh, obviously, Michael Arrington, having started TechCrunch, had a ton, you know, dating back over that that whole generation of of web startups. And then I had built up, hopefully, my own, uh, you know, Rolodex of interesting companies and founders. And so we did a number of investments as well that were much more opportunistic. They were pretty late stage. You know, a good example is like Uber. And when I say late stage, it was like the I believe it was $350 million valuation round, which now seems like a very, uh-huh. you know, a very early stage bet in Uber. But at the time, that was a late stage, you know, deal to be doing for a seed fund. And obviously that ended up doing fantastically well. But yeah. that wasn't what we thought necessarily the bread and butter would be because we were a small fund. We were never going to put millions and millions of dollars of checks into a single investment. We thought we were going to be doing hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, into into early stage, seed stage startups. And so we were doing the later stage stuff more on the side of, I wouldn't say marketing so much, but that was a part of it, right? It was it was because we had the connections, we could, we could uh, you know, utilize those to get into what we thought were still companies. And we thought there was still, you know, the sky was the limit for things like Uber. We invested in Tumblr, Airbnb, like all of these things now, which, you know, ended up having amazing, amazing outcomes. We could not have foreseen that they would be as, as big as they ended up being, but uh, it, it's fascinating to look back at it now because the uh, yeah the the massive companies that we got involved with were still relatively early stage. They were just you know uh, yeah. not seed stage, I would say, uh, in those companies. And then of course we did a lot of seed stage investing as well. I was I was having a conversation with Jason Green, and one thing that he said is being a great investor is you have to have a deep desire to live by the success of others. Was that something that personally motivated you or did you have something else in the venture space that actually was a strong motivator for you to stay and continue to be an investor? That's a good way to phrase it. Um, It reminds me, so my wife, uh, Megan Quinn, is also, she was an investor and now she's back on the operator side. So she started her career at Google, she went to Square, and then she moved over to the venture side from there and was at Kleiner um, for a while. And then she was at Spark Capital for a while. And then she moved back uh, last year to go back to the operating side. She had been on the board of of Niantic, the company that makes Pokemon Go, among other things. And so she moved back over. She had been on the board of that company and moved back over to be COO. So she always was the type of person who was um, a little bit hesitant, I would say, on the VC side because she felt the need to, I think she felt a stronger draw to be with a single company and sort of involved heavily you know, in the success and the day-to-day of that company. I was never like that because I did not come from, you know, a startup. I had come from, if if you consider TechCrunch to be a startup, I guess you could, but I had come from covering so many different types of startups and writing about so many different types of companies that it was sort of a natural transition to move, I think, again, to the to the VC side where you're sort of have the same dynamic where you're just watching a, a, a ton of things. Um, but that said, I, d- I do think, you know, it's fair to say that you're more, you know, actively participating, right? Um, in that, in obviously, you're you're giving the company uh, capital, and and hopefully more than that at the end of the day. But you are sort of more actively participating than than just writing a, a story about them, even if you do it sort of over time. And so, 
Uh, I think that's an interesting way to frame it, but it was not something that I ever had an issue with, um, you know, moving to the venture side of things. It is something that was more natural, I would say, because on the writing side, I had been yeah, living vicariously, as it were, through through these startups. So this is this is great. So I was talking to to a founder that we kind of like both backed, uh, uh, Ben Springwater, and one thing that he mentioned is you take a true partnership approach to investing in startups, and and the founder feels that they have you in their corner. Thinking about that when founders kind of like listening to that conversation and say like, how do you actually identify those investors who would take a true partnership approach? And and how would you know that those kind of investors exist and where to find them and how to partner with them? Yeah, that's something that's sort of evolved over time for me as an investor, again, over this decade, you know, because after roughly two years at CrunchFund, then I moved over to GV. I've been here about eight years now. And um, when I came on board at GV eight years ago, which, you know, people recognize is, is the artist formerly known as Google Ventures. We are formally called GV these days. But obviously, when I started, we were Google Ventures, and then the whole alphabet change happened. And so, you know, we moved on to become GV, which uh, I think people understand the the background there. But I would say when I came on board there eight, here eight years ago, uh, I was also largely doing seed investing. And um, eventually the fund just kept growing in size where it wasn't tenable to continue to do sort of seed investing at the scale that we were doing it simply because we couldn't scale the portfolio to sort of thousands of companies because that was just untenable for myself, for all the people on our team um, just being able to support those companies af- as effectively as possible. And so moving up the chain, as it were, uh, sort of taught me a number of things, but it also, at a higher level, taught me sort of where I value my time, how I value my time, and where I also think I'm most effective, you know, if I take a self-inward look of of helping early stage companies. And I do think it's it's to that point, it's at the earlier stages. Uh, you know, I've done a number of sort of late stage deals as well, and those are fantastic and, and some great companies there. But I do think, uh, you know, having run the whole gamut over this this time span now, where I really like to spend my time and where I do think that I, I provide more value, hopefully, uh, would be at the earlier stages. And so you bring up you bring up Ben uh, and, and a company like Matter, and that's uh, you know that's sort of right in the sweet spot of where I would ideally like to be involved with a company. And part of it is as as you're talking about sort of getting involved in the the day to day. You know, as funny I just talked about with with my wife and being an operator and and really being involved in the day to day. I don't think it, you know I'm not that involved uh, as as an employee of the company or someone who's a founder of the company. But I am you know at the call you know on the call for for Ben and for certain of these other very early stage companies, you know, whenever they need me, it's a text away or a Slack message away. And I'm happy to always sort of hop on and hash through some ideas or talk through anything or help them with whatever, you know, may pop up. And that to me is, again, just easier to do at the earlier stages. And I think it's more required at the earlier stages because these companies, you know, have smaller teams. They have, you know, sometimes founders have, this is not their first time, but sometimes it is their first time sort of founding a company. And, you know, hopefully my, decade of doing this has enough sort of data points to, to help, uh, you know, point in the right directions. It's not always going to be, you know, 100% correct, of course, and there's different situations uh, and nuance to every situation. But I do think that, uh, yeah, my, my entire sort of span has taught me where, again, I like to operate, where I think uh, I provide, you know, the most value to hopefully, again, the entrepreneurs and the startups themselves. And so uh, that's, that is why I like that exact Ben matter model where I'm, I'm partnering pretty closely with them. This is great. And just kind of like 
talking a little bit more on on your experience as a, as a communicator, right? That being in media in the business of communicating thoughts and communicating opinions. And once you said that you look for founders who communicate very well, you've went on and said this is commonly one of the overlooked skills that an investor don't like overlook in founders. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? And, and why do you think communication and, and storytelling is that critical to, to founders of, of tech companies? Sure. And I mean, yeah, obviously, it's it was sort of my entry point into the world, right? Again, I had been writing narratives about companies and, and blogging and, and reporting on, on various startups. And so it was an easy sort of transition point to then try to help out those companies with telling their story, with the narrative. And that continues to this day. Obviously, it's evolved as, as I've been doing this for long enough now that I hopefully have other skill sets as well uh, that are relevant to early stage companies and later stage companies too. But I do think the narrative thing remains and, and it will always remain, I would imagine, because that is, as you're alluding to, a critical point, uh, a critical part of a company, not only in the early days either. It's not just like a, you know, a press release or an announcement, announcement of funding or an announcement of, of whatever the product is. It's a whole slew of things, including uh, internal communications, including communicating with uh, investors too, right? You know, what, what is a pitch deck at the end of the day, but a, but a narrative? It's just a format that is used to convey you know, hopefully in, in a succinct way, a narrative about the company and a future vision uh, that an entrepreneur has about their company. And so I don't, you know, I'm not sure that that everyone sort of overlooks that part so much as they don't think about it in the way that uh, how vital it is to the day-to-day -day aspects of the company to sort of remaining on point about what, what it is that you do and, and what your reason is for existing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to remain on that line of thought uh, throughout basically every company that, that I've been in, been lucky enough to be involved with over the, over this past decade. Uh, and it continues, you know, from sort of day one, when we're talking about an investment, it's like, not only walk me through the pitch deck, but, you know, walk me through in your own words, like what it is that you're doing. And, and it, it goes all the way from there. If, if a company and a, if a founder or an entrepreneur is unable to do that effectively, I think they're just going to run into challenges with not only talking to potential investors, talking to, you know, potential customers uh, that they'll be signing up and, and people who hopefully will be using their products. If you can't convey what it is that you're doing, obviously it's not going to translate well and you're going to run into all sorts of issues with that. So it's a very fundamental thing that again, sounds obvious when you sort of say it out loud, but it's a, it's something that's not so obvious on, I would say on day-to-day -day practice because there's so much you you should be and need to be focused on in, a, in an early stage startup. Um, everything is on fire. And, and so how much time and effort should you put into that? And I would argue a lot because it is, you know, some, again, one of the most fundamental things. I agree with you. I often have a conversation with early stage founders. And as you said, it doesn't only apply to early stage, even late stage, but I'm always telling them you're telling a story. So one, you got to tell your story, right? Second, you get to make people buy in your story, whether an investor taking a bet and, and, and investing with you, whether, you know, an engineer taking a bet and want to work with for you, not working for Google or you know Twitter or Apple or another yeah. company. So you always telling your story and inspiring and being a storyteller is, is definitely a superpower and a skill that you have to to develop. And uh, just there, I think uh, you bring up a great point. That's um, it's not. It's also the fact of hiring, right? Like uh, so much of what 
you know, I think early stage CEOs don't recognize maybe it in the very first innings because you have, you know, maybe you have no co-founders, maybe you have a co-founder and you have a small founding team. But eventually the job of CEO is to hire great talent around you. And again, I draw it back to exactly what you're talking about, telling the story about what the company is doing, about what the product is doing, about uh, everything in, in that vein. It's the most fundamental thing to a company. And it's it, it can be overlooked because it seems obvious in some ways. And so you're exactly right that for hiring as well, again, what eventually becomes the key job of a CEO, that's the key aspect of it is telling the story and convincing uh, someone else to join up with you for that same story. Beyond storytelling and communication, you've backed a number of like incredible companies like Slack, Stripe, Medium, iconic tech companies um, for the past decade or, or more. Have you found a common trait that those founders of those companies have embodied as people, as humans, as founders of iconic tech companies? I would say... With those three examples and many others as well, there's a combination of a few things going on. It's not all. It's not going to be you know an easy one answer, you know one size fits all answer to this. But I would say there has to be a clear passion for solving a problem, which again sounds very simplified. But I do think part of all of this, from what I've seen, you know, in, in my own experience, is just having the drive and the persistence to remain doing something long enough, even when things are a challenge. You mentioned three, you know, great companies that are obviously, uh, you know, sort of well-known and at immense scale, but there are many others, uh, you know, at, at varying levels that I feel like have various different challenges at times. And all three of those did as well. You know, it's no secret that there's going to be challenges across the board. It's just at different times and different places of a company. And so it's just about having the a real desire to see your vision through, a real uh, just doggedness about maintaining uh, that vision through ups and downs, and then having all, all three of the, the ones that you mentioned too, it's just like an interesting sense of the, a product or a suite of products that need to exist in the world and how you sort of make that happen, even when you think there's already solved problems out there, right? I, th I think in... And actually, all three examples you bring up of Slack, Stripe, and Medium, like you could argue that there were sort of solved problems for all of those things. You know, even even with Stripe, there had been payments uh, solutions on the internet. Of course, yep. with Slack, there had been communication tools and and ways to to chat with your you know work group and and from email on down. And then and then of course, Medium, there had been many blogging tools, some created by Evan Williams himself. You know, in the in the previous days, and so. You know, they they had been going after things that weren't necessarily you know super obvious because again, it feels like a lot of people had been going after those things, but they felt like their specific vision around how to execute on those newfangled ways of doing things um, or just going deeper than anyone ever has before was just sort of a, a, a core to that and, and just really remaining steadfast. And again, I sort of boil it down to like just like a product level being obsessed with the way that these things are presented with ease of use, you know, in Stripe's case, and with sort of, uh, you know, a, a beautiful way of doing things in, in Medium's case, and sort of sort of a combination of those in, in Slack's case, and just a new, also a new way of, of thinking about, you know, IRC and old school technology, right? And like, how do you rejigger that for, for a modern uh, work environment? And so, 
yeah, they're all they're all interesting examples. Do you think velocity comes on top of those traits? The ability, because often if you think what makes a startup, what 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 is an advantage that a startup has, an early stage company has, over any incumbent? And one of those major things is actually their ability to move at a velocity that an incumbent would have no ability to move at, like because of processes, bureaucracies, you know, for good things, governance reasons, but those are Mm -hmm. less applied in an early stage. Do you think that comes on top or would you say that that is probably like, you know, number two, number three in the list? I mean, at the early stages of a company, I would say the single most important thing that I care about beyond sort of what I... You know the founding t- the founding team the 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 main entrepreneurs involved in it are obviously you know depending on again the stage at the earliest stages I think that that's the most important thing and one of the but the offshoot of that and why I think it's the most important thing is the ability to be malleable enough and to be to try a number of things because the likelihood that the first thing that you set out to do is going to work perfectly is almost zero right? Like yeah. at the very least, it's going to have to have slight pivots in direction, if not a major pivot as you know, like we just talked about Slack, obviously a, a massive, massive pivot uh, from a video, a video game um, in, into what they ended up doing. And so you need to be again, malleable, in my view, to be able to be in the right place, right time to put your company in the right place, right time. And so I think you're right, being, being both nimble in a way that a big tech behemoth cannot, and also being able to uh, once you figure out that avenue to go down, being able to move very, very rapidly and iterate very, very rapidly is something that's invaluable and and I think is sort of one of the core things that leads to startup success. Because again, it's something that is that is inherent by having a smaller team, by having you know may, perhaps a hungrier team, if you want to phrase it that way, and just uh, just a new new take on a on a space. And so you're you want to see that vision through again. And so I think that you're right that it, yeah, those things are you want to use your strengths. You don't have there's a lot of strengths that big big companies have. You know that that an early stage startup doesn't have money, user base, all the sorts of obvious things. And so you have to really look at what the advantages are that an early stage startup would have. And and those two are are really key. So you bring a great point around malleability. And once you wrote that one of your most favorite advice that you give is just keep at it. And the question that I would love to kind of like explore the nuances element to it, when to stop keeping at it and become more malleable and change, how do you draw the balance? How do you know, you know, once you said you you wrote blog posts that all your mother read, but you kept the course, you kept at it, and then you became, you know, one of the most well-known bloggers in the tech community. So, so how do you think about that? And, and more importantly, how do you advise founders when thinking about malleability? Do we keep at it? Do we change? Do we pivot? It's a great way to frame it because there is this dichotomy. You're hitting it like, right, the dichotomy of like, how much do you steadfastly go heads down and just say like, no, this needs to exist versus being open-minded enough to know when you need to change things a little bit. And I do think, you know, it's it's obviously there's a lot of nuance to it. So I'll give you, 
you know, you bring up my own example on the on the sort of writing and blogging side. Um, I would say the whole reason why I was so dogged and um, and just kept at it is because I was just super passionate about doing that. I loved it. I, I loved writing. Um, I had always sort of loved writing, dating back to school days. And while it wasn't my primary profession, it was something that I was always going to do on the side, no matter what industry I was in. I've been in multiple industries, and I've always been sort of writing on the side. And uh, so it's just something that I love to do in my spare time. And so it didn't feel like work to me. It didn't feel like a chore. It felt like something I was super passionate about. And that remains to this day. Now, I, you know, I, again, it's not my day job anymore, but I still write, you know, when I can. And, and some of it's to clarify my own thoughts. And, and maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but I do think that uh, that's what kept me going there. And I feel like, again, because I kept going, it was it was less about sort of the actual even writing I was doing and more just because I just kept going, eventually I found a way to put myself in the right place, right time to find a level of success uh, doing that. I really believe that. I think, uh, I don't even know if it necessarily matters about what I was writing about. I mean, I think that, you know, writing about technology had its had its obvious uh, path for me. And then that's the one I went down. But if I was writing about I don't know, movie scripts and, and something that I'd done in my previous career. You know, I think if I had kept at it for years and years, eventually I would put myself in the right place, right time to sort of find success in that avenue. And I do think that that translates at a high level uh, to what we're talking about with entrepreneurship and, and companies. I think that if you do something and you're really, truly inside passionate about something, you're not going to consider it work. You're going to want to do it. And so you're going to be fine with doing it for as long as it takes. Now, there's an interesting element of this on the on the um, startup side, which is, of course, the capital required to keep going, right? Like I was able to keep going on the writing side because it was a side gig, right? It was, I had a day job and that was allowing me to pay the bills. Though I did eventually leave that day job and just decide to go for it and, and do the writing full time. But as a startup, this is your full-time job, presumably. Obviously, there's some that, that on the side, and, and yeah. you can have success doing that as well. But it's it's mainly the day job. And so it's a question of you know how much can you pour into it before the resources start to go away. And I do think that that is a very, very tricky equation. And you see it pulled off. We talked about Slack already, uh, you know, as, as one example of pulling off a massive pivot. But there's smaller pivots, too, that, that you can do. Um, if you just aren't quite feeling in yourself, even like the passion for doing, you know, what it is that you sort of set out to do. I'll give you a good example of like a company that I feel like did a great job of this, which was also, you know, a, a portfolio company at GV and a company I was in the board of is a company called Anchor, which is in the podcasting space. So I had talked to the co-founders there, Mike and Nir. I had met them in the very early days of the, that company. And they were actually doing something more akin to call it like audio Twitter, like very short audio bursts uh, that were sent out sort of like tweet style um, and, and responded to in kind. Didn't think that that startup, you know, was exactly the right time, right place for, for it to work right there. And uh, it was also a little bit er, uh, early stage at the time for GV. And so kept talking to them, though. And eventually, you know, I think that they they came into the idea that, you know, maybe there's something that they could do that's still philosophically at a high level what they want to be doing in the audio space and connecting people via audio. And if they could do that in the podcasting world, which was something that was, you know, becoming 
hotter and hotter, you know, over time, but also had a had a much more established sort of business model, you know, to be able to to create a real business on top of that. And so, you know, at that point, I think felt really good that that they were onto something and that we would, you know, join up and and hopefully work towards a goal of of making that happen. And then eventually, of course, Spotify acquired the company uh, and it's still, you know, operating today as a part of uh, of Spotify. And Spotify's obviously done a ton of work in the podcasting space on top of Anchor as well. And so but that's that's a good example of like, you know, they had a high level idea of the space they wanted to operate in, of a of a future that they believe would existed with connected uh, devices, not only, you know, like obviously the phone, but also like Air, AirPods and things like that that were, you know, up and coming um, and having, you know, these things always in your ears. And, and what does that mean? And so, um, again, they it required a little bit of, of pivots here and there, but eventually they were able to find their way into uh, right place, right time for success. I, th- I think this is a great point. And I think just to reconcile the two notions, I think there you keep at iterating in the version of the world that you believe the world is going to be better off with. So in your example of writing, I just, you know, want to pick on that a little bit. You believe that communicating well thoughts and ideas to the world is going to be incredibly valuable. What you iterated through was the content and the nature of that content. You know, at some point you were writing about movies, then about tech and startups and things of right now. So you didn't, you kept at it for a time until it hit the point where it made a lot of sense. So you can still keep at something, but at the same time, do a lot of iteration. But your your vision of the version of the world of what you're doing still has been consistent, and it's still consistent while still iterating at the same time. So we kind of like reconcile those two notions, that, uh, you know, and they're not they might be seemingly contradicting each other, but they actually make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's a good a good way to frame it. And it's also remember, you're no one is operating in a vacuum. You're not just doing this and um, you know, there's just like uh all all greenfield opportunity out there as long as you stick with it. You do have to like read the market, you know, both you know, individually and as a startup and and know, you know, again, for me, so much of this boils down to right place, right time. There's, as we've seen time and time again in, in the startup world, there's so many ideas that failed the first time around that then come back around. It's like from web van on down, right? Like, and then come back around and become huge, huge businesses. And because so much of it has to do with timing, and there's a lot that goes into that, of course, it's like the technology that's that's in the right place at the right time to allow for it to be the right time for the startup to work and, and all of that. But you do have to, you know, read the market and have a good sense of like where you're operating and and if you do again believe that uh, the world is heading in this direction of 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 whatever your your big vision is it's knowing what is the path that gets you there that keeps the company alive long enough to be in that place to achieve success so th- this is great I, I know we could talk for hours one topic that that I want us to kind of like touch on very quickly is you have once said that you blog to learn in a venture space where it's like fast moving ever evolving how do you keep a learning mindset while at the same time build unique conviction in some of your investments and say that's exactly what is going to happen? So would love would love to get your perspective on that. 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, and and you frame it around blogging, which is obviously the context for me, but I would say that it translates across writing. I even see it sort of in on our GV team internally, you know, people who write me- internal memos that are not meant to be public and are never going to be public, but but just the, the process of writing the memo gives them a, a level of clarity that I think that they wouldn't have if they didn't do that, right? And so I think that that's, it's a, it's a learning that translates beyond just, yeah, the obvious stuff of, of the forward-facing blogging. That said, I do think it's interesting to do it forward-facing, you know, not for everything, obviously, not for things that are confidential and things like that, which I've learned over time, of course. But I do think that there's uh, there's something interesting. And obviously, Fred Wilson is is one of the greats, you know, at this, um, who's just sort of, you know, for many, many years at this point, put his thoughts in, uh, about spaces and and uh, companies and, and all different sorts of internal machinations um out there in the public on his on his avc blog and uh and i think that that's great because it's both it's both i am assuming is helpful for him to again clarify his own thoughts but it's helpful to so many people thousands and thousands if not more people um who then can read those thoughts and sort of it creates a jumping off point for them to then you know turn those gears in their head and you know people who riff off of other blog posts too like that they've read and and sort of then put their own thoughts out there and maybe maybe those thoughts connect to the right person that you're trying to hire or the right you know the right company that you're trying to get connected to and so yeah, for me, I mean, there's just the, the startup space, especially these days, is so big. There's so many companies out there. And um, it's very hard to just sit down, especially in our ever-connected world, and just sit and think quietly uh, for a moment about what you want to be doing and, and what you want to invest in or what you want to, you know, which companies you, you, you would hope to be involved with. And instead, sort of writing them down is a forcing function to basically filter things down a little bit and whittle things down to a point where you're creating uh, a thesis in your head and and you know maybe it's maybe it's the right thesis maybe it's not the the right thesis but again at least you're thinking critically about it and that that goes a long way in uh in forming opinions and and becoming getting your own conviction in your own in your own head about what to do this is great and i think the concept of forcing functions in learning by communicating what you learn can and continue to help you to be kind of like an ever-evolving learner, which is, you know, the blog post that you share, the, even the writing memos internally, there's a deadline that needs to be shared. So it helps you to crystallize a lot of your thoughts. A concluding question, MG, that I would love to get your thoughts on is, what do you think makes a great venture investor? Uh, that's, that is a very, very big question. Um what comes top top to mind? Like when you think about a great investor, like what comes top to mind? I would say I would answer that by saying uh, there are many, many, obviously many, many types of investors, and I think the thing that makes someone a great investor uh, over time again is uh, sort of knowing and ideally getting to as quickly as possible the place where your lane is. Uh, so, in other words, again, like like we've been talking about you know, with myself personally, sort of recognizing that I'm, uh, I feel like I'm uh, better uh, at this job at the earlier stages. And and that's just where I enjoy working more. And and I think, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm providing more value to the companies in those stages. And so it's very hard to jump into this world and, and know exactly where you're going to be sort of operating and where you should be operating. It takes years of time to do it. The faster, the better, obviously, as with anything. But I do feel like what makes a great investor is someone who quickly, as quickly as possible, again, and it's and I say quickly, it's going to take years, but someone who quickly recognizes their own strengths and is able to narrow in on 
utilizing those strengths to invest in companies that can also leverage those strengths. This is an amazing way to put it. Uh, really appreciate it, MG. Thank you for your time and, and looking forward to uh, more conversations. Thank you, Mo. It was great to talk. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, the Kaufman Fellows.